0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a
1: short message about our ministry.
2: So, you know, between Matt and Paul and myself and some other friends, we've, we seem to have this perennial conversation about between NT, we have some NT Wright fanboys and we have some David Bentley Hart fanboys in this group. And what to do with this whole issue of, you know, reading First Corinthians and body and flesh. And so um, I noticed you do some interesting things uh, that I probably haven't pondered deeply enough yet because, you know, you're capitalizing flesh and, uh, you know, meaning something very specific. Uh, but also, you know, say it's a, this is a bad condition to have. And so how would you articulate your understanding of flesh and spirit Perhaps in reference to both Wright, who talks about flesh and spirit as an orientation, or you know, he talks about what's animating the body, and David Bentley Hart, who argues that flesh is a less substantial mm. body than the spiritual body. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm okay, so this this gets at a critical theological issue that the book the writing right. of the book actually brought to prominence for me. And I had to rewrite the chapters that dealt with it several times. And that was Making the distinction between supra superlapsarianism.
2: Yeah, yeah. Which is,
1: um, this is crucial. crucial. So Tom mm-hmm. is an lapsarian and, and DBH, I'm assuming, is a, a superlapsarian.
2: Yeah, like um, in terms of Maximus or Gregory. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: and all we mean by that is, uh, is God simply restoring an original creation, Adam and Eve type creation that's been defaced and marred mm-hmm. by sin, or is there something transcendent going on? whereby the new creation that we step into is superior to these categories of Adam and Eve and whatnot. We're going to inhabit a new, yeah. new place. Yes. Okay, so let me just cut to the chase. Paul's gospel is incoherent unless he's a superlapsarian. Amen. Uh, there's no way around this. Um, the whole basis of moving beyond these structures and moving beyond stru- Jewish structures, the relativizing that takes place there, without a complete denigration... But the relativizing depends on a superlapsarian move. Without superlapserianism uh, the whole thing is just... Well, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll make a mess of it all if you're an infralapsarian, I'm afraid. So I, I think Tom stumbles into this trap a little bit because I think, and I, I think like a lot of people, he's worried about gender construction. And a lot of people who are worried and anxious about gender construction, uh, will go in for lapsarian. They'll go back like, um, you know, well, no, I'm going to resist animal metaphors. This point. <laughs> they rush back to Genesis 2 and 3 and build their castle there, and that's a kind of a foundationalist move. That's yeah. not doing anthropology out of the person who really matters, who is the risen and ascended Christ. Yeah. And Paul is really clear about this. This new body is going to be a spiritual body, not a fleshly body. There's a sense in which it's spirit, and it needs to be because we're not going to die anymore. Right. Yeah, it has connotations for. <laughs> we're from, not like, going right, to eat.
2: Right, incorruptible. Oh, oh. I mean, this is the gospel yeah. gone too. Yeah, I know. It's
1: good. You're sure as hell not going to be like you are now, even even if you work really, really well. This is this is got to be a new ball game. So I think DBH gets this. Uh, very, very clearly. Um, uh, not always convinced that Tom
0: mm-hmm.
1: is locking on to these issues. Um, but you know, having said that, uh Tom is trying to defend the bodily resurrection Paul, in Paul and its viability. He doesn't want to he doesn't want it spiritualized in an unhelpful That's way, right. where you come along and say, Oh, it's ethereal, it didn't really happen, there's like a vapor blowing around. And this is what Paul's about. It's a vision. He wants to say there's something. I think what he wants to say is it's concrete. It's always concrete. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there's our body. And he's right. Embodiment seems to be key, right? Mm -hmm. And he's right about that. I I think I completely endorse what he's saying in terms of an embodied resurrection and its importance.
2: Yeah, because I guess the other extreme, and I, this is, conversation was happening with another friend who's not here, but I mean, you, there's this peculiar thing in like Aquinas' works where even in his own corpus, he moves from talking about how resurrection is super important to, uh, you know, just sort of a uh, vision, <laughs> you know, and resurrection becomes less vision. important. Yeah. beatific vision. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. But that can I, mean I...
2: multiple things. That's probably very controversial too. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, all I would say is I'm
1: anticipating having a hell of a lot of fun in the Divine Communion as we participate and connect, and I think it'll be creative and joyful. And it's very, very hard for us to know what what that will be like, but I'm just That's right. I'm just anticipating it's going to be really good. That's right. It's good.
0: Well, thank you. That was that was a wonderful. Let, let me see if in my little head I I understood, and that is that. Can we say that supralapsarian has the notion that creation is completed or finished in Christ?
1: Yes, as long as where we have to go with this is um, the the age to come, the new creation, that's the plan from all along. That's plan A. This is what God, so to speak, had in mind. So we have to re- we have to rethink our own location. Sometimes I talk about this in terms of creation with a with a capital C, as the eschaton, um, and where we are is sort of creation with a small C. And we have to think through what to do with that. And I found T. F. Torrance terrific on that. Mm-hmm. It, it's 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 creation with a capital C where we're going. Otherwise, you otherwise you um, understand God is doing sort of a plan A, plan B thing which is a terrible idea, where God kind of sets that plan and goes, well, that didn't work too well. And I knew it wouldn't, but anyway, I just did it. And now we're going to move into the stuff that really mm-hmm. matters. That, that's that's a terrible understanding of God. That's not the God revealed through Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ was the plan of God <laughs> from before the foundation yeah. of the world. And so the risen Christ is really the telos of creation. Uh, and the, the and orthodoxy gets this. they They're all over it. They, they, like, <laughs> they've absolutely got hold of this idea. The West, maybe not so much.
2: <laughs> yeah, the way we asked the question, or the way I put the question to Paul when we were leading up to con- conversing with you is, I, mean, I don't think we would want to say that the point of Jesus is merely to deal with our sin. Exactly. Because you know yeah. sin <laughs> isn't necessary to creation. Exactly. Uh, and Jesus is. Exactly. It makes Jesus plan B. It's like Jesus is right. kind of a backup plan. And the, it, it gets worse
1: because if you go this route, uh, he doesn't do a very good job. Because uh, right. for most people, it's like, oh, you know, here's plan A. Uh, let's get going. <laughs> oh, crap, look, things went wrong. Uh, we'll send Jesus. I will personally intervene into the situation <laughs> to fix it. Oh, oh, that didn't work terribly well either. Look at all the people that, <laughs> that kind of got left out. I mean, that is a terrible. it's still a mess. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's a right. terrible idea. Um, so you, you fix all these ideas when you grasp this wonderful truth that truth. Jesus is the beginning as well as the end of God's purposes. And we know the beginning because we know the end. Um, yeah, and you get into space-time issues here. My buddy Jeff McSwain, who's a very fine theologian, is doing wonderful work on this. He's he's working on the symbol and Jesus' assumption, full assumption of uh, all our crap and mm. also all the goodness that is to be, and he kind of bends that back around and accompanies us through our struggle, through our journey. So we have the risen Christ where we're going, standing over us, pulling us into his perfect Mm -hmm. relationality. Love is a superpower. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what's doing. We can't always see it. We are sometimes uh, discouraged. What we see, however, is not what really matters, as Paul said mm-hmm. on one occasion. I'll
0: continue to draw this out. I think part of this may be semantic, and that is the obviously it's semantic between uh, to a degree. But the notion that flesh is physical, I think, may be the problem. and, and using your own notion of what is the nugget of the problem. Well, one of those things you've identified is foundationalism. And isn't it the problem, in other words, that clearly when the Bible talks about a sin principle, and it does seem to use the the word flesh in this way, that it's not simply, oh, we've got these physical bodies and that's our problem. No, we've got a tendency toward making what is secondary, what is finite, infinite. Or we have a tendency to be foundationalist. That is, we would take our physical body, not that that's a problem, and we would make it an end in itself. And when that occurs, that is the sin principle or the principle of the flesh at work.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, Flesh for Paul... Is not just something physical. It's it's a designation of what we're constructed of, and he thinks that it's um, infected, if you like, contaminated by these sinful lusts and desires that are constantly waging war on anything good that's going on in our minds. So we're we're a contested space. We're a battlefield when we're in the flesh. Uh, it's no fun, and and we lose the battle frequently. Um, <clears throat> I think that's exactly what's going on. And one of the ways in which the sinful lusts are warring on us is exactly as you say, the, the tendency to self-deify. I wouldn't programatize that. I, I certainly would just observe and say this is depressingly common. I think that behind Paul's account of our problematic situation, which is both we're oppressed from without by evil powers and kind of oppressed from within, by evil lusts, <laughs> behind, of that, behind that I think is almost an apocalyptic scenario where evil is warring against God's goodness and attacking everywhere it can in whatever way it can. And, and evil is something that we can't get hold of, and we don't want to get hold of it, but it's, 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 it's corroding and destroying all that is good. So the, the privation account of evil I think is, is really helpful here. Uh, it's fundamentally a negating and a negative and an acidic sort of a phenomenon. It's got this protein quality. I don't want to be too depressing, but there's a there's a kind of a ghastly creativity to evil. Where if we over define it, we miss the damage that it's doing as it comes in the back door in another form. If that makes if that makes any sense, um, we we have to be very very careful here. Yeah. Yeah. However lest we end on a thoroughly depressing note, we, we, we right. have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Bard is great on this, by the way. He is terrific yeah. on this. Yeah. Section 50 in the Dogmatics in 3.3. And he says, you know, you cannot overestimate the power of evil to overcome you, seduce you, and incapacitate you. And you cannot overestimate the degree to which God through Jesus has triumphed over evil. What a nice thing to do.
3: I, I continually have to remind well both myself and my friends that you know saint paul wasn't a materialist right um <laughs> yeah and, uh, you know uh one of the things that as i'm um, being received into the orthodox church you know that they really hit a lot upon is the defeat of the powers in the yeah. spiritual realm yeah uh and and david hart also you know does a lot yeah. of this too you know with talking how Paul has sort of, uh, the, the part of Paul's gospel, he says somewhere, is that, well, you know, that the that the dark powers have been overthrown by by Christ. And in the East, of course, today we're, we're um, celebrating the Feast of the Ascension. So before we give Paul the last question, I guess I could ask you that. Like, do you agree with that vision that that is a sort of a major component that we might overlook uh, a bit in the West of Paul's theology or his eschatology? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Now, he
1: does make a very interesting remark in First Corinthians 2 where he talks about the powers crucifying Jesus. So there's a little moment there where you can see that the powers that occupy the heavenly realms are intermingled with what we would look at straight up mm. kind of political mm-hmm. uh, powers of the state. Um, right. Having said that, I think that the language of the powers is something that we do shy away from and marginalize. It is very important. And I think Properly understood, and I, I kind of go after this a bit in the book. I think this is a very important language for us to hold on to because it allows, it, it conveys and communicates this the sense that I was just mentioning of evil coming at us. Uh, you don't want to underestimate what, what's coming at you. I mean, you know, we're an American, right? We know this to be true. Evil is assaulting us in all sorts of ways, and it's nasty. Um, and the language of the powers will deliver that in a way that just burying sin in human tendencies will not. That will domesticate it and trivialize it,
3: and that—that's a very, that would be a, yeah, a destructive thing to do. I think that's great. I could talk about that type of stuff all day, but we want to respect your time and so uh we can keep talking if you want um i think that paul has at least one more question for you well you're willing me out you know i'm exhausted i'm gonna have to go and have a little
0: maybe two beers uh the last one i was uh, the the section on navigation and maybe you know i i spent 20 years in japan as a missionary and and you you lay this out so nicely it, it's again it's so accessible i hope your students appreciate what you're doing for them me too um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, if if you have anybody that needs encouragement, just send them my way and totally. because you're yeah. you're doing a lot of work, I think that's what a good teacher does for their students. Is you don't need to r- ram your head against this wall that I've ran my head against uh, specifically in Japan.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, good.
0: And it's always as you say in that section. It's harder to actually navigate the real world situation but what you're describing i think is as a missionary or as we're all on mission how we engage current issues you know in in japan you specifically mentioned the issue of ancestor worship so let me raise that in japan and maybe it's just east asia and that is that there is this veneration of the ancestors That in some way gets conveyed. And I've never quite, even though I've looked at it, you know, it's hard to say how. It's certainly through Confucianism, but it's more than simply regard for the ancestors, that it is incorporated into, ironically, the Buddhist element in Japan of the religion. And so there is this kind of reification of you know, ancestor worship. And I notice you commend missionaries who have incorporated that. But I'm, I'm just wondering, let's just take that one little issue. Where would you draw the line and say, well, you can go this far, but no further?
1: Mm. Well, I'm tempted to cop out of this one because one of my principles is you can't navigate a context until you're immersed in it. And so we tend to judge situations that we're not fully immersed in. This is a bad liberal habit of pronouncing on reality as if it's all the same. And what I'm wanting to do is get to a very granular account of missionary work. So I would say I wouldn't want to pronounce on that firmly unless I was actually living with the people who were doing it, understanding them, befriending them, and hearing where they're coming from so fully that I could reflect back to them exactly what they're saying. And at that moment, I would feel that I had the information to maybe make a suggestion about what they're doing. And, and what I would hope would happen is catechizing them would lead to them navigating the situation in the right way so that there might be a very subtle inflection um, under Christian influence that would lead to an, a kind of a, um, a Japanese form of Christianized ancestor veneration that was that was good that was okay that was that was woven into the texture of their of their um churchly life
2: does that make sense that's where i would go oh Um, you
0: came off very wise on that question oh wonderful (laughs) wonderful i mean Um,
2: i just tell paul that when he dies i'll pray for him and maybe even erect a chantry there you go yeah.
1: Um, Paul, that's it's so uh, helpful for me to hear you say that, you know, on the basis of a lot of missionary experience, um, you found that mapping of the dynamics useful because obviously I haven't had the experience that you've had. Um, but was it in fact the case? You thought that that was a reasonably helpful grid for uh, laying out a good way of doing mission. That makes sense. Oh, absolutely,
0: absolutely. Japan is such a unusual in a lot of ways that it's so thoroughly Eastern, but it has so taken up a Western notion of the nation state as a form of identity. So that being Japanese is almost a religion, in other words, just the identity. Anyone that's trying to negotiate that, it's easy to, to go one of two directions. I think falsely one would be to say, man, these Japanese, they think they're so unique and being Japanese, you know. And so just to kind of react, and this is a very common thing, that people react against the culture and kind of the ethnocentrism, not recognizing that actually what they're up against is actually a Western ethnocentrism that has been adopted by japanese that is the whole notion of of a nation state of being japanese is directly yeah. borrowed from yeah. uh, great britain and the united states so you know you can react that way but then of course you don't want to throw out just it's a lovely culture and there are these there's wonderful cultural elements that unfortunately in the missionary activity in japan i am afraid have not been fully appreciated. Yeah. And so there is this stark divide that I think has greatly harmed the advance of Christianity in Japan. And one of the famous Christians, perhaps the most famous Japanese Christian, Uchimura Kanzo, said, "Who do I love more, Japan or Jesus?" Mm. Well, of course, that's not. The question is already a, a misunderstanding
1: yeah 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 can i love jesus in the japanese way
0: (laughs) yeah yeah so that wasn't posed to him in that way and that and his question arises as being thoroughly saturated i mean he was well educated in an american brand of christianity he was thoroughly japanese and that's the way that it got posed in his understanding and for many japanese to this day to be japanese means well primarily or one of the key things and there's a history to this is to not be christian
1: yeah yeah
0: because christianity is perceived as a western cultural understanding yeah yeah and so your little grid there yeah it's uh, that if you if somebody could be taken through that and said, okay, this is, you really do need to have an appreciation of where you are and you need to be able to negotiate this because ultimately you're not saving, you know, this is maybe a question, uh, you know, I don't think we're delivering people out of culture. We can't. But we're delivering them. Yeah. Yeah, you can't.
1: Yeah, and you don't want to because that's a derogation of a lot of the good gifts that God has given us. And things that he's perfectly happy with and even enjoys um, so you've got to you've got to navigate these things the right way that's ah, very interesting um, and you brought us back in a circle because I'm not going to give you any rules in this book uh, I'm going to give you hopefully a mind or a mentality it's a virtue ethic so you can go out and navigate this situation once you've learned to think about it properly yeah unexpected things yeah. will happen yeah
0: let me follow that up then with the last thing here, and that is that you do deal with the idea of of sexuality and what. So, can you explain your understanding of the issue of sexuality and homosexuality?
1: Well, this is another navigation. Um, it's a tricky one, obviously very contested. So, I'm running my structure relationality distinction, which actually allows me to take science quite seriously. And I ended up in an interesting place because where I ended up with was uh, affirming a covenantal account of marriage, like the importance of relationality, of commitment to um, one another, when there's sexual expression of love, and often associated with that is is, um, rearing children. So if we if we start with that group of people and say, well, we know what a marriage is there. There's like parents, kids. And then we think about, rather than thinking about this like a liberal and coming up with a rule, let's think about it like Paul as a missionary visiting populations and groups of people who are doing things differently. And let's navigate this situation like Paul. So we go, well, what do we do with couples that can't have children or have found out that they can't have children? Are we going to stop them from marrying? Well, of course we're not. We haven't. What are we going to do with couples that practice birth control? What are we going to do with these sorts of people, we've already included them in our covenantal, in our definition of marriage. So we've already basically signed off on an account of marriage in terms of covenant. That that's 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 a very strongly theologically trinitarianly warranted account of marriage. It comes straight out of the relationality of God. So then we encounter other populations. Oh, before we get to our other populations, uh, so what are the big problems assaulting? Um, sexual expression in an appropriate way in the church? What what does this account of marriage name? Well, it names problems that we're not paying attention to, which is the relational destruction, uh, the lack of support we give to people who are married, to stay married, and um, a lot of sexual activity outside of marriages. However, we conceive those. We're literally training ourselves to break our covenants with one another by the way we're behaving. And then we have to navigate into a modern situation that Paul didn't face, where we have this long artificial gap between when people are biologically ready for sex and when they're allowed to get married culturally and have sex, according to this view. There's this fraught, dangerous zone uh, where the poor teenagers and young adults that we allow to wander through this you know, not surprisingly, they get into the trouble and they mess up. We're, we're not recognising the pressure that we're putting on our young people and supporting them. Uh, so this is this is really where I wanted to go primarily. I wanted to make make that clear. We're here to support you and help you. Sexuality needs to be within marriage. And the the flip side of this is our churches should be safe spaces. There shouldn't be predation, incest. Um, damage, rape, all these sorts of things, uh, we have to face up to the fact that this stuff is happening and it's an imperative that the church addresses that and deals with it transparently and constructively. So we've got a lot of work we need to do. So so there's an awful lot on our plates before we start dumping on gay people. So let's go to gay people and say, well, here's a new population. I've got, say, two people, uh, two men want to get married. They want to covenant with one another. Do I have uh, do I have objections to that? And at that point, the only objections I can make to that are going to be infralapsarian, uh, which obviously I'm already abandoning in relation to ethnicity and race and class. So I can't pull them out of my satchel again and apply them to this group of struggling and marginalized people. It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Infralapsarianism doesn't apply to anybody except you. Okay, this is, this is a backward step. So we're going, stay cons- con- we're going to stay consistent. And, you know, there are, let I say gay people should be allowed to marry. Um, and that will be a huge gift to us when we let them do that and invite them to our churches because, as Stanley Howard says sometimes, they're the only people that really care about marriage these days. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll save marriage for the church. The gay okay? people will save marriage for the church because they know what it really is. Which is which is a covenant, a covenant of love uh, between two people in this
2: way. So, um, I've got things to say to both sides. Yeah, yeah, very true. (laughs) Oh, that's great though. Um, If your book had just come a little bit sooner in the mail, I I tried, man, man, (laughs) I I tried. Uh, I was, I I think, I even may have pre-ordered it, but I was thinking, I was trying to think about what i was going to write about mm. this topic for it's just a little like episcopal church blog thing through forward movement and um I ended up using some of sean copeland's work because your book didn't get here soon enough but the conclusion is very similar and that's if we're going to support this we're going to support it because it's true and that it participates in what god is doing in the cosmos and this is where everything has been directed and um what's interesting about I think your critique about just gender, marriage, sexuality in general is you're critiquing what's been the problem on both sides is that regardless of what your position is, they're all, they tend to be, um, infralapsarian approaches.
1: Yeah. They're both a plague on both your houses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're both, they're both and, and, and they're foundationalists mm-hmm. and where foundationalism gets its foot on the door and damages people. That's right. That's good. Yeah. And in and, and, and all sorts of ways. Um, we need. We need to resist that.
0: Uh, excellent conversation. We sure appreciate you doing this. Thank you, guys. Um, it's
1: been fun. I hope you can hear me. That's a slightly scary thing to say, right? Just <laughs> a slightly scary prospect. It yeah. could all go. Could it? Could have been just.
0: Could have been just us three. Well, yeah. To entrust <laughs> me four. with the technology, you just don't know the danger <laughs> that we're all facing. I know
1: yeah oh I, I think I do yeah we sure
0: appreciate you uh talking to us doug and and we appreciate your book and uh, man, the contribution that you've made to the church is just huge, and uh so we're very thankful for your ministry and and your scholarship
1: no, it's very kind of you, very kind of you thanks for inviting me. It's been fun.
3: Can we get you back on the show tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm busy tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash
0: donate.